Professor Simon Deacon, Director of the Centre for Business Research, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Do bonuses and incentive plans work, or, or are they just a way of you know, getting a salary increase by the back door? Well, the real, the real problem is that share options benefit executives in the event that the share price goes up and a company does well. But if the share price goes down, executives rarely see a fall in their pay, and they simply don't exercise the share options concerned. So it's pretty much a one-way street for them, and there's no real accountability to shareholders or to anybody else by these means. But, but the solution that's being put forward at the moment is, is that you do have shareholder accountability shareholders then you know come to the annual general meeting they bang their fists on the table they say you haven't performed well as our ceo and you can't have your bonus won't that work there's a real misunderstanding here because shareholders don't have the right to manage the company and don't have the right to give direct orders to the board on matters like this. At the moment, they are entitled to give an advisory opinion, and that's really as far as it goes. So there's a mismatch here between the reality of shareholder powerlessness in the face of what has become a kind of generally accepted way to pay executives and the view of politicians and others that somehow if only shareholders could get their act together, they could stop these, these practices. Well, basically, they can't. Do you think perhaps there's a culture of short-termism? We saw what happened with Sir Fred Goodwin and, and then Stephen Hester, but you can't turn a bank or a, a big corporation round that quickly, particularly if it's global, that, that you know, we've got to let these guys get their feet un under the table and they deserve their bonuses. Well, the, the, obviously the case for paying Stephen Hester, what, what he was being paid, was that he was brought in to do a specific job, and this is simply the going rate at the moment for people in his position. So it isn't fair to, to focus just on one person. And in the case of Sir Fred Goodwin, again, the, the issue would be, was one man really to blame for the failure of RBS and for the, the government bailout? The question in his case is really why policymakers, regulators and others allowed a bank like RBS to operate in the way that it did, to be such an aggressive takeover bidder in the market for corporate control and why the clear risks that the bank was running were not taken on board at an earlier point by the regulators. Naming and shaming, does that work? Because you know, we are now in a culture of naming, shaming and blaming or does it just put more pressure on the CEO so they think, well, I'm not going to stick this job more than two years and I'll move on somewhere else where I can have a, a quieter life? If in the case of RBS there had been a breach of duty by the members of the board, by the executives and also by the non-executives, the right course of action would have been for legal proceedings to have been brought in the name of the company against those directors for a breach of duty or for the directors to be disqualified under various regulations from practising as directors. Now that's happened in just one case, Johnny Cameron who was head of the investment banking division but legal action has not been taken against the other directors. Now, the FSA said there was no case for taking action against Sir Fred Goodwin. The company has itself decided presumably not to sue former directors for breach of the duty of care. There are legal mechanisms for dealing with these issues. It's wrong in this context for somebody to be singled out by MPs or by a political process when there, there are legal routes, they weren't taken for presumably good reasons. Yes, naming and shaming under those circumstances is simply wrong. It's unfair too. It's unfair to the individual concern. Now, having said that, the real issue here is the law is inadequate. Clearly, RBS wasn't being well run, and for many years have been run in a highly risky way. Now, sometimes those risks paid off for Sir Fred Goodwin and for RBS. Eventually, they didn't pay off, and the taxpayer had to really foot the bill for that. Now, that's wrong, but the, the error here lies in the regulatory framework, in the view that companies like RBS should have been active in a takeover market, that hostile takeovers are a good thing for all concerned, and that the UK, the 
city benefits from being at the hub of this uh, international global market for corporate control. Those were all serious errors, but those were the errors of, to a large extent, policymakers, to a large extent, city establishment, and also of intellectuals and others who supported this line of work. Now, I know you've just said that naming and shaming can be unfair in certain circumstances. You mentioned the need for to work to regulatory codes, but you also think that tax law reform can help. How? Well, one reason why we've seen such great use of share options is because they were encouraged by the tax system. The tax system also encourages takeovers because it, it allows tax relief to companies where they take on debt, which is often the consequence of a takeover or a private equity buyout. So the tax system has been driving hostile takeovers and has been driving private equity deals. It's also been driving share options. The tax system has been driving all the things which contributed to excessive risk-taking in the financial sector in the run-up to the crisis, which began in 2008. So it's not right to say that this is just a consequence of particular corporate strategies or maybe a particular individual like Sir Fred Goodwin. Policymakers, in particular through the tax system, systematically set out to encourage practices which turned out to be very risky indeed and had a huge public cost. Now, all right, so we're tinkering with these systems at the moment. We've had, if you like, since post-war, modern Britain, social policy, if you like, the growth of capitalism unabated, unchecked. Do we need a more fundamental root and branch reform of the legal systems within which corporate governance regulates boardrooms and boardroom pay in particular? Well, for the past 30 years, we've had the idea that government should basically take a back seat in all this and that by empowering shareholders and giving them voice, giving voice to independent directors, we could deal with the, the, the risk of corporate excess and of a lack of accountability. This was a false prospectus, as I said before. Shareholders can only do so much to control managers. And if government just takes a back seat, and even worse, if government puts in place a tax regime and a company law regime that encourages the idea that companies should be engaged in the pursuit of shareholder value at all costs and should be engaging in hostile takeovers whenever possible, then what will happen in 2008 will simply happen all over again. So yes, we do need a fundamental rethink about what the function and purpose of a big company like RBS, like these companies, what is their function and purpose? Are they just serving short-term financial needs or are they serving a wider range of interests? Do we need new laws? certainly do need new laws. We need a fundamental review of the way the corporate tax system operates. We also need a review of the way in which corporate governance is structured to give overwhelming voice to, to shareholders at the expense of other stakeholder groups, but also, at the same time, not giving those shareholders the real powers that people might, might think they should have to control managerial excess. The simple truth is that, at the end of the day, neither shareholders nor workers nor customers, these so-called stakeholders, can control some of the corporate excess that occurred in the run-up to 2008. We need really much more effective financial market regulation for that, but it would certainly help if other stakeholders, apart from shareholders, were given a voice in corporate governance. So employee membership remuneration committees is just the first step to, in this process. We should also be thinking seriously about employee representation at board level. Now, Simon, if we spread our net and eyes a bit wider, we look across the oceans, we look at what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the United States and, and perhaps in Japan, where I know, I know you, you have expertise at boardroom level, that, you know, are we worse in the UK because our system of regulation isn't up to scratch? And I know that you admire something called 
co-determination. What is that? We've rejected the idea of, um, in the UK that workers should have a voice in corporate governance. Their position has been completely marginalised. In Germany, by contrast, workers do have a voice. They have broad-level representation in big companies and they have representation in works councils on issues of workplace organisation. And this does engender long-termism and also a more cooperative approach to the, the running of big firms. And we, we can see this very clearly now has benefited the German economy. Its productive base has remained very strong, notwithstanding globalisation. Pretty much the same is true of Japan, where there isn't formal co-determination, but on the whole, boards of directors do not think that their job is just to return value to shareholders. They think the job of the company is to build up as a productive organisation over the long term to provide jobs and a high level of service for customers and consumers. So the German and Japanese models have been very, very successful in building up productive, stable companies that provide jobs and support public infrastructure and communities on the whole, in those countries. And we instead have companies which support the city, which engage in hostile takeovers, uh, sometimes successfully, but very often not. And we've also seen a whittling away of our productive economy over the last 20 years. So just finally, Simon, if you had uh, David Cameron, George Osborne in the room now, what action would you like them to take? Clearly, they don't like regulation, but regulation is needed. Well, they would recognise that at the end of the day, there's going to be regulation through the tax system, through company law. That's just unavoidable. So it's a question of getting the regulation right. The current government has quite rightly pointed to the need for pension funds to be more serious long-term investors in, in such things as UK infrastructure projects. Now, that's a really promising sign that the government's taking these issues very seriously. And they shouldn't be afraid of saying that mistakes were made. And, and indeed, they have said this. Mistakes were made over the past 20 to 30 years, not just by the previous Labour government, but going back further than that, some aspects of the 1980 settlement on the city unravelled essentially in 2008. So now's the time for them to really grasp this nettle. Professor Simon Deacon, Programme Director for the Centre for Business Research, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. Thank you very much, Bonnie.